Hello, everyone. Welcome back to How Real Life Works. This is Annie, and as usual, I'm here with Andre. Hello, everyone. Today we have another career episode for you. We are going deeper into the gaming industry, and in this one, we're talking to Adam. We are specifically talking about video game dialogue design. Andre, tell us how did we came to find Adam, and what did you think of this interview? What was your highlights? His role as a senior dialogue lead has not much to do with writing the story for the game. That's what we initially thought when when we found Adam on LinkedIn. So Adam, by the way, works for Bungie and he's working on the, the Destiny games. So Adam described to us the whole process of the audio and creating the dialogue for games. And from what I understand, it's a mix of thinking about the personality of the characters, what is their background, the concept, picking the right voice talent to make sure it fits the character, and then making sure that you record it well and then playing with it in the post-editing. So to me, that was the big reveal that it's not about the writing only, and it also involves a lot about the tech audio side. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I agree. There's um, we found out that it's not at all about writing stories, and they kind of they work really closely with the narrative team, but it's not like that. If we think about it, of course, there's someone who's behind all these audio design processes, right? If today we were to let Mario speak in a game, probably somebody has to decide who gets to voice Mario. And if he actually needs a voice, and once the person is recorded, do we need to alter this person's voice in some way to make it sound, you know, like more high pitch and more cute? Which is kind of like what we came to know about Mario's sound. So all these things, all this big process is going to、um, happen for the role of dialogue team, and that's what we slowly discover. To me, the most memorable thing is probably what exactly does it make a game memorable? It could be audio, it could be character design, it could be kind of just gameplay. And audio was something I never considered. And、um, Adam talks about how less is more, which is also probably a very common、um, concept used in marketing. But that's also translated into you know game audio design. So these are all things that I've never thought about. And as someone who's interested in games. And also narrative, and also stories. It's just kind of mind blowing. If you're really into games, and if you really like,、uh, let's say, audio, you will be probably、uh, super excited to hear, and then you will probably also feel like, oh my gosh, there's a job for me out there <laughs> at the end of this interview. If you want us to dive deeper into the gaming industry, even if you have, let's say, a role in mind, you can leave us a comment on the podcast or YouTube channel, or even join our Discord and Reddit to let us know. And if you like our podcast, remember to subscribe and follow us. Right now, let's get into the episode. Adam, welcome to our podcast. Hi, nice to nice to be here. Yes, and I'm here with Annie as usually. Hi, Annie. Hello, everyone. So, you have this very specific niche role, which is called senior dialogue lead. I have、yes. just checked it on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> it, means, it means you're getting older. You work for Bungie right now, but you also do some stuff on the side, which maybe hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about. But first, I would like to maybe approach this interview from a broader perspective. So, since we're going to be talking about dialogue and talking in games. Why do you think dialogue is important for games? Because it hasn't been with, I mean, it hasn't been a core part of games since games were invented. 
it's an avenue and I say an avenue, not the avenue, but one of the avenues um, that provides contextual storytelling, which is a way for players to suspend their disbelief. So when you're playing a game, you want to fall into the world of the game. And that might be as simple as I always go back to like original Super Mario Brothers, right? Like a game that has no dialogue. But if I say the Super Mario coin sound, you know exactly what that sounds like. If I hum a few bars of a few notes of the songs, you know, like you know exactly what the level two music is. And if you're old enough in original, you know, Nintendo Super Mario Brothers and Part of that is like repetition and playing over time and getting used to the mechanics and falling it into it that way. And way back in the day, we would have manuals that you could dig into that would tell you the story of the Koopa characters that are just little ducks that appear on screen, right? Goombas and where they came from. And people are like really interested in that, right? And that in a way, like a manual is a bit of dialogue. It's at least text, right? Um, that shares a story that allows you to fall into this world and imagine things that are in this world that may not even be presented on screen to you. Now, because game technology has gone so far, we can at some points present a, almost a cinematic or almost a movie-like story in a game that allows you to fall into this world. And it's all about the, I hesitate to say escapism, right? Because I feel like that has some a bit of negative connotation where right. like your your life is so bad that you have to escape into a game. But to some extent, like that's true. That can be true. And uh, people do use games as an escape in a positive way. Right. Which is awesome. But really it's just to like give you a place to connect and uh, suspend your disbelief, just like you would in a show. Right. Just like you would in a movie. I can confirm that escapism because it has happened to me only once in life when I got fired from my job. It was three years ago. And I, even though I really hated the company, we were, we were really not a good match. I was still feeling a little bit down. And the, the only thing that I thought of was just to start playing games because it's really like you get into a different world and you stop thinking about the, the bad things that are happening in your life. So, yeah, I think games is like one of the, um, I guess most interactive media that's out there existing in the day. So it's like once you start playing, you have to pay attention to everything, like to solve puzzles or not die or beat levels. So yeah, I think I agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the dialogue, we haven't shared this question with you before, but since you're the senior guy here. Yes, I did earn the gray hair. Um, if I'll turn on the camera. Like that's, Part of the senior thing is you have to have a quantity of gray hair for right, them to right. make you into a senior. Just like when, as we're talking about how to get work and how to get jobs and how real life works. That's one of the requirements. Yeah. If you don't have enough gray hair, they can't make you a senior. Anyway. So what I wanted to ask is, do you remember historically, maybe whether from your experience or maybe from the statistics, like what was the first game that really made the dialogue, I don't know, let's say mainstream or where the dialogue really added the know the thing for the game i don't know off the top of my head to be quite honest like what the game with breakthrough dialogue is but uh, like i don't know what i think of when i think of like us the first games that hit me in like a quote-unquote cinematic perspective were were halo and half-life like the very original ones and i'm sure that that was not at all the first instance of recorded dialogue in games but those like 
people still, I was, I was watching interviews cause I went back through and played the master chief collection or a good chunk of it because I had never played halo two and halo three back in the day. I was always a Sony PlayStation guy rather than Xbox. Um, and I just never had the ability to play the games, um, other than when they were released on PC or the few of them that were, but if you go back and look at trailers for like halo two, people are applauding it for how cinematic it is and how it feels like a movie and an experience that you're in. And it's just so crazy. And like, if you go back and watch original halo two clips now, you're like, that's cinematic. Like, how is that? Ugh, right. But the way that they were doing storytelling back then was, especially for the time of Halo and Half-Life, was just absolutely unreal and unlike anything else in games very much way back then. Um, and it's why today, like people still clamor for Halo. Hey, you know, Halo Infinite's about to release at the end, end of the year. And if Half-Life 3 got announced, I'm sure that, you know, a good chunk of game players wouldn't care. Uh, it, excuse me, Half-Life 3. If Half-Life 3 got announced, a good chunk of players wouldn't care, but a ton of people my age would be like, oh, I'm like 12 again and I need to, you know, go back and play this, even if it's not great or whatever. But I think the internet would just go down if it was announced. <laughs> Let's put it that I, way. I suppose it's just, uh, uh, but yeah, like those are the games that really hit me. Like I remember what the G man sounds like, right? right? Yep. Those first interactions with Master Chief and Cortana and how people would endlessly not shut up about them and how at one point it was even like which one's better half-life or halo mm -hmm. you know and all of those it was the, the next iteration of what's better mario or sonic so those are things that hit me big um, i'm sure that there was other earlier use of dialogue in games though um, and i'm sure that people flirted with it in a bunch of ways that didn't really work very well until people started getting it quote unquote right in ways that you know, brought people in and brought people's hearts and minds in and really got them connected to what that game was trying to, to do. It's good that you mentioned Half-Life because I remember that game and maybe this would be a stupid question, but if we use the term dialogue, to me, it usually means it's a discussion between two or more people. But when we talk about dialogue, especially in Half-Life, I think the main character wasn't talking at all, right? It was just the other characters talking to him so how how would you let's say define dialogue in games is it just voiceover that's a, a lot of how i define it um it's just a character speaking right if a character is speaking and there's there's words going on that are and you know if you wanted to be crazy with this you could argue that simlish is voiceover right um, and simlicious dialogue. And I, I wouldn't argue against that, especially because it's probably audio files playback, right? I don't recall exactly how the simlish language gets put together, but, um, somebody, they had to have a linguist put a, you know, make a language and then have people record it. So that has all of the problems that, you know, dialogue from the audio perspective or narrative perspective has, has in games, right? Mm -hmm. The one thing that that routes away from is a thing that is unique to dialogue in games, which is localization. So, I mean, like you have dubbed movies and whatnot, but the interactivity of games makes localization in incredibly difficult because things are timed, languages are in different times and all of these different things that people don't think about. So, but yeah, the, how I would describe dialogue use in games is just somebody's opening their mouth and we record it, right? It's a very simple definition. Actually, the same thing that you just mentioned previously about the Mario and the coin. My sister and I sometimes talk in Simlish because we <laughs> play 
we play Sims too. And then we just like, we can even say like, I want to go to the bathroom in Simlish because that just like registered so much um, through time. I was just wondering, so what is your thoughts on games without dialogue then? Is there any kind of like things that's taken away because they lack dialogue? Does dialogue always make a game better in the sense? Unequivocally, I can say no, the dialogue does not always make a game better. You could say black and white noir game, right? That color wouldn't make that game better necessarily. Like it could, but it's all about creative choices. It's all about how you want to use a thing. At the end of the day, what I think about from an audio perspective um, is just, and I don't think this is exclusive to audio. It's just, that's the way that I came up in the industry. And therefore I think about it from that, from a sonic perspective than anything else. Games are always trying to communicate something and especially just creation, like creativity is trying to communicate something. And maybe, you know, that's just fun. Maybe that is an artistic or, you know, social statement or whatever. Maybe it's hanging out with your friends and uh, it can be any number of different things that, that we create is trying to communicate, but it's less, it's always less about what we like utilizing a specific element always in order to create the art right if you put again to go back to super mario brothers on nes if you put dialogue in that game i would kill you right it doesn't work it wouldn't work if mario when mario jumped went yeah right even just a little nonverbal that i would argue is more of a sound effect than a than a voice element i don't want it there because not only because i have an idea of what that experience is and um, it doesn't work in my opinion or whatever. It's just that that game, it, it's pretty much perfect as it is, right? Um, it is the experience that they set out and create. You know, later iterations of a Mario or even a Zelda or whatever include dialogue or verbals and they're different experiences. And when they include verbal things of a talent speaking into a microphone, their goals of of communicating something is a different, fundamentally different art than a thing that's nonverbal, right? So yeah, I would say that it, it really depends on what you're trying to make and what the goals that you're trying to communicate are. And in that case, you can say, yeah, dialogue is really useful to use or no, it isn't. In the case of like a highly replayable experience, dialogue usually gets in the way a lot of right. times. Right, right. And it's, you have to be careful about where you pick your spots and you need to pull stuff out. I'm really cognizant in my work of pulling out things and not giving you too much stuff. And it's not perfect all the time, but that's where the use of repetition becomes really important because the, the reason that you remember the Mario coin sound is because you hear it so much. And I'm sure that when they put that sound in, that's the best that they had. It's the best that they thought that they could do at the time with what they were doing. And, but it's great and legendary because you hear it all the time, right? You're now hearing it over and over and over again as I reference Mario Coin in the podcast. It's playing in your head if you know what that sound sounds like, right? Um, and that's picking a medium, understanding the medium of how you of what you're using and why it's important. You know, using repetition to a to communicate something sonically, and then you know, in the case of dialogue, there's no point, there's no need. You don't need it, right? So, right. So dialogue is almost in a way kind of like one of the tools you can use mm -hmm. to get your point across. So it doesn't necessarily is required, but and when used right, it could be 
really memorable, just like Absolutely. sound effects or everything else. Yeah. And I think that's a sign of a mature creator is knowing where to pick your spots. To take this back to people getting out of school or trying to get into an industry, everybody's thinking about how they can do the best of what they can do and like bringing their best content. And sometimes your best content is no content at all. And just letting something else shine in the place that in the void that you leave. Sometimes people have to shut up like dialogue moments. If you had a, if you have a moment in a game, like talked previously about the, the halo infinite and first trailer that ever dropped that you can go view on the internet right now. It's a bunch of scenic scenes and there's some teases of halo stuff and there's a few piano notes and the visual drop of master chief holding his helmet by his leg. And it's all music and scene. There's not a line of dot. Master Chief doesn't say a word, but it conveys this emotion to the people who are watching it that really want Halo in the style of, you know, Halo one through three really badly. And people freaked out about it. And that's just the creation of a trailer. But in the same way, a game, a game works the exact same way. You have to pick your spots and leave voids for things to shine at the right moment. Sometimes that's that's dialogue. Sometimes that's gameplay. Sometimes that's art. You know, there's all sorts of different things. And if you're all competing, there's only so many different things a user can pay attention to. The games that you mentioned, I think those are pretty much classics. And for older people like us, it's still a lot of nostalgia. But is there a game that you played where you would actually think a dialogue edit would make it better? When, when I was thinking about this question, the first game that came to my mind was Grand Theft Auto 3. Well, so I can't remember this far back. Did Grand Theft Auto 3 have zero VO in it? No. No, 4 did. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're looking at it the, the whole game, but but the main character wasn't ah, wasn't voiced. You're talking about the main character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in the product that I work on, uh, primarily is Destiny, right? Mm-hmm. And Destiny, the player barely speaks, mm-hmm. and to some extent, that's done with intentionality. Some extent, it's not. Without getting into the nitty gritty details of specifics of it, but like, um the argument for a player character not speaking is that it allows you to speak through what you do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and your choices and the idea that the player character is mostly nameless and mostly faceless allows you to ascribe your creative traits your imaginative traits onto that character and i don't think that's right i don't think that's wrong it just is a choice Mm mm-hmm I would argue that things are lost for me in some respect to player characters in like the newer Grand Theft Auto games because you're telling a story of a character that I'm just inhabiting, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that he's an avatar, but the avatar acts in a way necessarily or responds in a way that maybe I do, maybe I want to, or maybe I don't, right? Um, and that's things like franchises like Mass Effect try to rectify as you get to make choices uh, based on what the character does and they verbalize one way or the other, but you get to make the choice and people obviously love that. So it's just a different, different design choices that put you in different places. And again, it goes back to what are you trying to convey with the game? Mm-hmm. So dialogue, you mentioned that it's people speaking. Uh, recently, we did an interview with uh, Richard from from a media company, and he does fully, fully artists. So 
do you consider everything that's not dialogue to be like audio design within games and is dialogue part of audio or are they like on the on the same level I'll say these are all my personal definitions. Okay. And I think that if we're trying to put anything as factual and that I'm right and that everybody else is wrong, or even I'm mostly right and some people are, their opinions are wrong. It's just, it, it, no. The way that I pull apart audio is dialogue is both a narrative discipline and an audio discipline because as soon as somebody is speaking into a microphone then you're talking about pushing airwaves into a microphone recording that you know manipulating that in audio software if necessary cleaning that up blah 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 making it playback making it mix all of those things are audio parts of that discipline whereas the the writing of that, the conceptualizing the story, the making sure that there's a plot, making sure that the structure of the plot fits, making sure that everybody has every character is utilized and has an arc and, you know, is important or not. Those are all narrative things. And where the two, where audio and narrative cross is performance. A lot of times, um, narrative designers have a, a movie in their heads that plays back when they write their scenes. And they're trying to get the scene to either match as closely as possible to what's in their heads or they're open, um, which from my perspective, I would argue is better for collaboration and serendipity of, of exactly how the scene gets performed. And then on the audio side, I want to make sure that that performance is conveying good emotion because it means that there's less work for me to do to like design something of a, you know, a vocal monster effect or putting it in at the right time or timing the dialogue, right. Or whatever. Uh, if, if we nail it and record it right the first time, then we don't have to do a bunch of work to manipulate and make it sound right in the back end, Right. So that's where audio narrative cross with sound design. It's the, it, it's kind of a grab bag between what I consider dialogue and versus sound design in a way, because what if a monster grunts, is that a, is that a dialogue line or is that sound design? And, you know, it can be argued one way or the other. The way that I usually work with it is like combat barks. If somebody was, you know, what I call like if you're in the middle of fighting and you shoot an enemy and they go, Ugh, right? Usually that's sound design, right? Because there's not a bunch of like rules that I have to adhere to if like we're doing Screen Actors Guild talent where, you know, I have to make sure that all of the nonverbals are uh done by the actor or whatever and those can just be effects that are made gunshots are obviously just sound design footsteps are just sound design you know all of these elements that you are you are sweetening the game in effect and you're creating a sonic world that's all sound design um music also fits under an audio discipline too it's all of these elements that combine at the very end of if if it makes noise then at some point it becomes audio and at some point you have to work to mix it as if it were a movie or an album. Right. Um, and so we're as an audio discipline, really concerned with how all of these elements come together and how they clash and how to make them unclash. Right. But between audio, like sound design, dialogue and music, there's a bunch of different skills that fit very cross discipline that we all need to be aware of and know about and know how to work with and work with each other. But as a sound designer, I'm not always super worried about meter and tempo and key changes and timing and, you know, melodies and all those sorts of things. I could be, but I'm not necessarily. 
as a, a musician, a composer, I'm not super concerned about the frequencies and repetitions and fades of, you know, gunshots and how those gunshots sound and feel and how to make a gun feel like it's big, right? Just by its sound or feel like it's small just by its sound or feel like it shoots right, right? And as a dialogue person, I'm concerned with performance and talent and making sure that I don't get in the way of those other experiences with the music and sound. I'm just thinking, so the nemesis in Resident Evil, he grunts and he says only stars. He's still dialogue, right? In this sense. It's an argument. It's like yeah. a mix. Yeah. Like it could be, but you know, that's such a small amount of work that I would be shocked if Capcom had a dialogue department for that or a lead of dialogue. It's probably right. just somebody going and yelling stars into a microphone yeah. a bunch of different times, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, it's dialogue as a discipline or a department is a f somewhat fairly new thing in games. And it's always been handled by sound design. And there's been an interaction between sound design and narrative, right? But now you've got bigger games like uh, Last of Us. And, you know, we can go back to the Halos and the Half-Lives and say that like cinematic games you know, right. kind of necessitate because they have lots and lots and lots of assets. Um, just the uh, scope of work in general requires that somebody's focused on it, Right. And that's usually what ends up causing somebody to focus on dialogue in general is if you have a lot of work to do, somebody's got to take care of it and be a part of it, right? So now that we're speaking about, I guess, someone taking care of that, what exactly does a dialogue lead do? In generalities, without getting into my super day-to-day -day and, you know, revealing and just doing a documentary about how we cook the game or whatever, there's a varying amount of stuff that I slash we do um, in terms of like working with actors and getting performances and working with narrative teams to tell good stories. Uh, I personally manage a group of people um, and help them, you know, build the products that we build. And whether that be like seasonal games or yearly games or whatever, imagining new monsters, imagining new use of voice in games, imagining what we were talking about with like repetition and how much content that we're putting out all of like every anything and everything to do with getting that all down the pipe creating like working with performers to create those performances working with relative vendors and recording studios getting all that content in, managing the content making that content sound good in a vacuum making it sound good in a mix making sure it doesn't clash with everything making sure that um, we help the teams localize it and get built into a bunch of different languages because as you said any like to have uh, you, if you're German and you hear, you know, Destiny or whatever other game in your home language, it brings you into the experience and tells you that, yeah. like, this is important to you and the studio cares about you and this is a universal experience uh, rather than forcing you to play it in English in a bad, chopped up way, right? Or, or that you don't understand part of what's going on, even if you, you know, speak second language or whatever. We want to make sure that, you know, this, these games are for everyone. Um, and so sometimes do well in that, sometimes we don't, and, but, but that's effectively like all of those related things. It could be any given day that I'm focused on, um, any individual part of that, but I'm concerned as a dialogue lead or the gray haired dialogue lead, uh, being more senior, obviously I am concerned with the high level overview of that to make sure that all the individual parts run really, really well. 
sometimes I'm jumping in and going, okay, I'm going to take this part of a project on, and this is going to be my thing to do. But more often than not, I'm going, okay, this part of the project needs to be done. What does that need to be done? Like, how do we need to do that? Um, what, what is what we call in scope or out of scope? Like, because with, when you're working with creatives, you come up with new cool ideas and you're like, Ooh, I want to do this, but then that's going to take three more days. And being the arbiter of going like, that's a great idea, but let's save that for another time. Or, um, you know, that's a great idea. Let's, let's not do this other idea we were going to do and, you know, devote our time to that. So I'm managing expectations and scope of work and making sure that everybody's taken care of constantly. And also if anything breaks or anything to fire, then if you have lead under your title, then you're responsible for it too. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Thinking how to how to ask this question because you said you cannot go much into the details, but we ask all of our guests how does they their day to day look like. So I'm thinking if maybe we should approach it from the perspective because because you are in more in the let's say well the senior role, but by that I mean that not that you have the gray hair, but you have <laughs> you're more experienced and you're more there to to manage a team of people to to get the job done. But if I was, let's say, interested in getting into dialogue, I don't know what, what could be my first, let's say, entry role. So how would, I don't know, pick something and maybe try to give us a very general day-to-day for that kind of a role instead of your own, which is mostly about managing and leading. Well, I can try to give you some of my day-to-day. The hard part about my day-to-day is not even just the detail. It's just that it changes so often. Mm-hmm. Um, because as as a uh, lead in a a project or multiple projects or what have you as a designer who is entry level um, you are more so focused on a task right Mm -hmm. and whether it's dialogue or whatever else it may be hey there's a character that we need to design a voice for so we have this performer who's done something and we need to turn them into a monster Mm -hmm. Um, or we need to not turn them into a monster, but, you know, just do something interesting to their voice or whatever, or not do anything at all and be aware of that. But then that becomes a task for the designer to do. Right. And it depends on their level of seniority and how well they are, how good they are at the job of how much creative leeway do they get in that? How much time do they spend in that? What do the revisions look like? How what does the collaboration look like? What other teams do they need to talk to? Blah blah blah, whatever, and how self-led they are too. But usually, like a designer's job is to take on a set of tasks, right, and to get those tasks done. As a lead, I'm thinking about all the tasks, right, and making sure that each of those tasks has owners, and thinking about the product as a whole rather than the individual task. And I am effectively delegating the details of the tasks in a lot of ways and i'm the arbiter of maybe quality we could say right and sometimes like schedule and time is the arbiter of quality instead of a human you know we can only do so much that we can do but it's mostly uh you know my day might change from going to a voiceover session to different meetings and then tasking people out and, you know, working on the back end of making sure the product continues to roll or, you know, in an offhand time, which usually isn't uh, so much these days and partially because I hold myself back from it, but I could go do a voice design myself if I wanted to or needed to, or, you know, we had too much work and I needed to jump into something. 
but that's usually uh, if you're talking about an entry level person, they're usually getting into the nitty gritty detail work of designing voices or figuring out why the game is broken and why there's bugs and fixing that and uh, reporting back with that and being really, really into the weeds on that work and being an expert in figuring out the details, right? And then as you grow in your career, you have to move yourself away from the details, teach Mm -hmm. other people how you've always done your work, train someone up so that you can take on other tasks and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. How exactly does voice design look like? Let's say you play with what somebody recorded, like you sent somebody record something that's supposed to be a monster. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about voice design, is it something that happens maybe even before it gets recorded? Absolutely. Right? The way I like to do it uh, is start at the very beginning with the concept of a character, right? Because if narrative is not clear on exactly what this character sounds like, looks like acts like their motivations you know how they interact with other characters in the world whether they're going to interact with them in a certain story or not we need to figure out how this character fits into the game as it exists right Mm -hmm. and what makes them unique and special Mm -hmm. and the characters that don't work that players don't attach themselves to are invariably the ones that you know people who are making these sorts of products just aren't clear on right um, and it's not that every single character is the most memorable character or needs to be the most memorable character or whatnot. A lot of characters are side players and bits, right? And they're caricatures sometimes. But even with those, what I'd argue is you need to be clear on on who the character is and what they're like. So when you get that down, what I like to do is work it down to an elevator pitch, right? And effectively be able to describe the character and and who they are in about a sentence. If you can do it in about a sentence or two sentences, like I, if I come up with any on the spot that aren't our characters, uh, it'll sound horrible. But like you know, this this one's a big old brute who's a, a lovable force or something like that, right? And again, that sounds cheesy and bad. But um, for most of the character concepts that we've come up with in Destiny. I have this character is a combination of one character, you know, from a movie and a character from a TV show, or uh, has this emotion meets this un- unexpected thing, and they're combinations of things that really describe the co- the inner core of where we're starting with the character, right? Then that can be delivered to uh, voice talent mm-hmm. uh, because then voice talent gets to embody those emotions, right? So we have to deliver what we call sides along with casting sheets done with any sort of audition whether it be tv or movies or whatever and people audition for these parts and we listen to all those auditions and it literally becomes this subjective hiring game of what they're trying to do convey what i'm trying to feel and communicate Mm -hmm. and again it goes back to that feel and communication what am i Mm -hmm. what emotions are we trying to convey with this performance with this performer and sometimes we don't actually a lot of times we don't know like we have an idea but the idea needs to be held loosely, right? Because what if a performer comes and brings something and you're like, oh, I never thought of that before, mm-hmm. right? Then I don't want to turn that down because, you know, sometimes the special sauce happens live in the moment. And then that that's all voice design in of itself. And then we go record the performer. Well, then maybe we need some art, whether or not a character has actually been made before or concept art. 
and talk about what this character sounds like. What kind of voice effects do they have? What is their cadence in speaking? What is their tone? Do they speak low or do they speak high? Right? Like how are, what are the different frequency ranges kind of like instruments and music? Are you going to use a xylophone here? Are you going to use a, you know, upright bass, right? The two very different instruments used for two completely different purposes and different goals and communicating different things, right? And so having those conversations with our audio design team and like the people who work on dialogue and all of those things mesh together. And what what we eventually get is this really long, really giant game of telephone where somebody starts out at the very beginning and says, I have this one idea. And then everybody jumps in and kind of spray paints their own little thing on it. And maybe that was, you know, something that the original person thought was cool. And maybe they don't. But, you know, it continually gets hit with more and more and more and more and more creative ideas. And inevitably, like almost every time we go and do voice designs on a character where, let's say, we're making a monster and we have uh, a woman who speaks normally, well, do we pitch her down? And do we add like what you would consider sound design elements? Do we, you know, go record a fridge and then put that as a layer underneath the character to add this like low crazy rumble to it? Do we muffle it any if they're wearing a mask? Like all of these different elements have to be considered and played with. And invariably, like we'll even we'll get to the person who's actually doing the voice design and making the monster and they come out with something and I go like, oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. But that's awesome. Right. Oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. I like these two elements. Let's keep those and let's try again, right? And it's just like any other creative art in that way where somebody comes out with something and you all sit down and go, okay, compared to our goals that we set out to do and what we're trying to hit, does this? do we all feel like these hits those things? And if it doesn't, then why? And we have to be able to articulate that all together. And it's very much you have to hold your ego back, right? And be open to other people pitching in ideas too. Who has the ultimate decision power when it comes to like saying like, hey, yeah, this is the right one? Because you still you mentioned that you get the idea from the from the narrative, right? Or from the concept artists. So can you say like, okay, I like how this sounds and I think the guys will like it, or do you have to have it checked by, I don't know, the director, the game director or the producer. If we're speaking generally, like it really depends on how the studio is set up because Mm -hmm. no two game studios work the same way and no approval processes are ever quite the same. Right. And I think it's probably ends up being a combination of a lot of people. Um, At the end of the day with me and my responsibility, if I put my stamp of approval on something, I have to stand by it and have a reason why. Right. And so if people disagree with me or want to argue with me, it's not that I get to trample over them and say, no, this is the way we're doing it. But I have to be like, this is why, you know, we've chosen this direction. If you don't like it, I need you to let me know. We need to be able to talk about it. We need to look at the schedule and make sure like if we can make those changes or if you vehemently hate it for some reason, depends on who that is that we need to talk to. Right. And some people just want to contribute their opinion. And it's like, okay, well, maybe we act on that opinion and maybe we don't. And uh, either way, what I consider most important um, is not even necessarily the end product itself, is more that we treat everybody well who is contributing to the product. Mm -hmm. Because at least in the, the game that we make, 
we make constant updates to this game all the time. So if we ship something that is like, you know, 80 to 90% of what we would have wanted, sometimes we have to be okay with that. And I like to err to be more okay with that and to take care of our people than to run somebody over and run them ragged and make them work 80 hours, you know, a week to get the most perfect creative thing. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when we can like, okay, we didn't love that pass. It was good enough to ship, but let's, you know, go review it later and see if we can do something new and more interesting and whatever for a later release. Stupid question. So does it mean that sometimes you just let things go? Even if you maybe really don't like them, I don't want to say hate them just to make someone feel valuable to the team. I don't, I wouldn't put those things against each other, Mm -hmm. right? Because inevitably that sometimes you're going to make something and not love it. Or sometimes a director is going to tell you that they want a thing and you're going to be just completely disconnected from it emotionally. And you're just going to have to go like, oh, I guess I'll make this thing that I hate and don't think works right because that's what my boss wants. I try to be really cognizant of that. And what it ends up with us more often than not is there's like a dance between like budget schedule time people's emotions and our ability to pull something off mm-hmm. and i don't go like hey you know you're feeling bad and you don't like this so let's cater to you and make the product worse right that's right. not that's not a thing that sits but what i'm trying to say is oh hey you don't like this and you feel bad hey why like what's what's up what's behind that let's talk about that let's figure that out if we've got time and you know let's Let's work on that and make the product better for everybody, right? Because there's valuable feedback in that too. It's very rare that somebody just goes like, I just don't like it. Because that's not, that's not constructive. What's constructive is like, okay, why, like, what is the problem here and what's an issue? Oh, you do have a valuable, you do have valuable feedback on that. And maybe we act on it again and maybe we don't. But I can tell you there's some voices and designs that we've put into this game since I've been working on it that, you know, aren't my absolute favorite and where I wanted to end things up, even though I'm technically one of the people responsible for putting it out at the end of the day, right? Because there's a lot of different cooks in the kitchen. There's a lot of different people who have different opinions. And when it comes down to the audio mix, especially, we have to work in favor of helping our team. If uh, something that we make clashes with music or sound design, we need to be considerate of that, right? And we need to make the best thing that we can given the time allotted. And that's any game studio and any creative discipline deals with all of these sorts of things. What is the one thing that you (laughs) hate about your job? Like which activity? The easy one is meetings. (laughs) Any particular meetings? The abundance of them. No, I just, you know, do a lot of, whether it be creative concepting and really trying to gain a vision for the release that then I can put that down to the rest of our team or just the literal, like helping produce the content, right. And like talk about schedules and budgets and be the arbiter of some of that stuff. Not a producer, but, um, I know that you've talked to game producers before and I do some of that work sometimes, right. So yeah, like that's, you know, meetings are not fun. Uh, the abundance of meetings aren't fun. Really, it's just for Bungie, especially not speaking, you know, 
on behalf of the company or anything. But uh, there's just always something to be done. If you're working on a live service game, I think this is just the case. Like I, I would assume the people who are working on League of Legends or at almost any Riot game feel the same way and Fortnite is probably the same thing. There's just always something that's on fire. Mm-hmm. There's always something that's going on. And it's like this double-edged sword in the games industry because for the staff, live service games are one of the best things that's happened for like a career, having a career in games, right? Because the way that it used to work was there are very few full-time employees and there were literally hundreds of contractors. And so people would come on and especially if you were a creative, you would just contract and you would work mm-hmm. for 18 months and then be forced off for six months. And then either you'd come back to that same game or you'd go to a different one, right? And you'd never be full-time and your benefits were limited, right? But with the live service game, it's we play the content treadmill. So there's always something to be made and there's always a lot of stuff to do. Um, and we never, ever, ever stop. But that's an exchange for you always have a job effectively, right? So we don't put out the big boxed product where it's go, we go, hey, this is going on a store shelf and now the game is done and look at this creation. You get to go enjoy, you know, God of War or what have you. But then right after that, we finished, oh, you're sorry, you're fired, right? Everybody's <laughs> laid off. Instead, we just, there's always like, I can't fret about the product that we just made because I have to fret about the product that we're making, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even this is one of the nice things about live service games is even if there's something we put out that I'm like, ugh, that's not my favorite. Well, I'm working on the next thing. So right, I don't right. have I don't have too much brain space to think about it. So yeah, it's just, you know, there's never a day where I wake up and I'm like, ah, I don't there's no meetings. Nobody's yelling at me about it. They're like, they're not yelling at me, but like I don't have a ton of chat messages, right? I don't see the ticker while I'm in a meeting pop up about more and more and more chats, right? So there's just always stuff to communicate. Okay, maybe maybe let's go to the era before you had your first gray hair. So how how did you become interested in that? I think it was like middle school. I wanted to be a rock star. Like every <laughs> every other good boy brought up in the 90s, you either wanted to be like a like a hip hop star or a rock star or both, you know, whatever. Um and so I, you know, got a guitar and played guitar and wanted to be in a famous band and yada yada without going into like a 30 minute diatribe of my entire history of my life which you can check out on linkedin or something effectively like i i took a roundabout way in school where i started doing computer science uh i actually failed out of that which was amazing and then moved into uh theater inadvertently it wasn't actually planned i got coerced and then it just made sense so i did theater for three or four years and got a degree in doing that uh then i went crazy and moved like to like acting Los no, I was behind the scenes. So I was oh, doing okay. sound for theater. Oh, okay. Wearing all blacks, doing tech, right? And that's where I learned like if I am horrible at taking compliments about work, right? So if nobody's talking about, you know, the thing that I worked on that and they're celebrating, if they're not celebrating it, that usually means in my brain that I did a good job. Because in theater, if somebody notices the thing that you did and you're not the actor, like notices the scene element changed or the sound effect played here or whatever, and they notice it, that means they're broken out of the scene, right? Mm. That means they realize that they're in a theater play rather than right. like experiencing the thing. Right. And so I do well when nobody compliments me. I'm like, ah, oh, mm. that means I'm doing a great job, mm. right? 
I went from that and went crazy because I'm from the East Coast of the US and moved to Los Angeles and tried to get a job doing studio music recording. And that was post Napster. So that was impossible. Maybe explain to, to the younger audience <laughs> what, what life pre Napster and post Napster were like. Is that? Yeah. Like, I don't think people know what Napster is. So, oh gosh, even that. So, children, there was a time before <laughs> the internet. Where Spotify wasn't a word yet, and nor was Apple Music, and nor was YouTube. YouTube was not even a thought in someone's mind yet, where you had these things called CDs, or perhaps tapes, or perhaps vinyl. Oh, you, you probably know what vinyl is. That makes sense. But you know, if you want to go back like really far and ridiculous, well, depending on who you are and how old you are listening to this, we even had eight tracks, right? Or four track machines. And so you had these physical things that you had to put music on and you couldn't easily trade them around and pirate things other than with your close friends, right? Couldn't steal music very easily unless you dubbed a tape. And even then, you know, it was, here's my tape, my best friend, I guess, you know, an artist lost out on a little bit of money, but it wasn't widespread and rampant, right? right. Had to buy special equipment. And then my generation came along and someone went to college and said, Hey, you know, audio files on computers are just data. You can share these things. Let's pass them around. And they were like, well, you know what I like to share music. Let's share really bad quality audiophile music. And then no, and we could share it with anyone in the world. And so everybody would started downloading music and then, uh, you know, Metallica turned into the hated band and most hated right. band in the world. Right because they were vehemently against it and people made fun of them in cartoons. And everybody my age was like, why is this bad? I don't understand that, you know, the economics that when I download somebody's music, I'm not paying them for it and therefore they can't make a living. I don't, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Right. And we won't even get into the record label percentage discussion of making a living in that because that's a whole nother thing. But you know, effectively, there was a time before when music made money and it propped up an entire industry just on the, like the actual songs alone, right? Regardless of touring and whatnot. And at the same time, it wasn't in a situation where you as a musician could just download, you know, whatever music making software you want and make music in your bedroom, right? I think it was a, a good friend of mine was telling me, I think it's Billie Eilish who like, recorded an entire album on her laptop with her brother or something like that that's a normal thing now mm -hmm. right but if you think about it that means that the need for music studios has just completely caved in because if somebody's a multi-billion selling pop artist or streaming pop artist and they did it in their bedroom with her brother or not bedroom but like home with her brother then you don't need a studio anymore so then mm -hmm. studios become this really niche thing that is used for like cinematic movie scores and potentially voiceover for games, um, which COVID has changed some of that. And it just makes it so that you have to have something that you really need an audio tech for to really pull off. And music these days isn't that way. So to get back to the story, moved to Los Angeles and already music sharing and piracy on the internet was a thing. So major studios, like really famous studios in LA were folding and closing. Um, and it would just became very, very difficult to get a job there, especially if you're from out of town and you didn't have a ton of credits and you were a student right out of school, right? So 
without again getting into a giant story about it inadvertently i fell into independent film started doing independent film even though that wasn't what i wanted to do somebody offered me money and they were like come work on my movie originally they weren't offering me money and i said no because i wanted to be a musician still and you know work on music even though that wasn't going anywhere they said hey come work on my movie i'll pay you a thousand dollars and as soon as they said i'll pay you a thousand dollars i was like oh yes real money yeah and so and you know a thousand dollars meant a lot to me at the time mm-hmm. and then i did movie after movie after movie uh and i ended up moving out to seattle um somewhat inadvertently again and just kept meeting people and kept what we would call hustling back in the day and just being intentional about going out and meeting people finding people who do what you do whether that's making movies or running events or making video games or even like i worked in architecture at a point right if it was related to audiovisual work and especially if it made sound like i was really interested in doing it so i never turned an opportunity down so my career has actually spanned from music making to live events to doing live sound at huge uh, music festivals tv film i was doing web series before youtube was a thing i have dvd box sets of things that i've made i've worked in yeah as i said architecture there's a bunch of uh, buildings here in seattle that i've helped design you know av systems for uh Mm -hmm. and then i moved out of that and got into games because i one of the first companies i actually built a relationship with here on the film side was bungie Mm -hmm. um just through a number of connections i did documentary work for vidox for bungie here a little bit and that then turned me into a contractor who was helping record cinematics for them we would way back when in like 2011 we were doing motion capture performance for cinematics and we would record the performers speaking their parts as they performed them in motion capture at the same time and so i was helping as an external helping uh capture that stuff and that sound and then eventually I decided to move into games full time and started myself in localization and then moved around and did technical sound design, which is like programming and sound design in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, most recently, a couple of years back here, Bungie hired me to do dialogue full time. So I've done it as a really, really, really long way of saying like there's not one way to get into this field. And if you're doing audio, you can do a lot of different stuff and as much as you feel like you might need to get a job right outside of school and just like get into the the dream that you want to get into, there's a lot of opportunities that you never consider that are actually really cool things too. And there's plenty of time for you to jump around and um, especially make use of your interests while you're younger too. Yeah. What I understood is that your main driving force when you were younger was music, that you wanted to be the rock star, right? Yeah, but then you somehow find your found your way into sound design and doing dialogue. Mm-hmm. But is there, you know, based on your experience right now, is there any signs that you could tell to younger people? Like, I don't know, let's say they're playing a game or they're watching a movie. Is there something that maybe could give you a sign that they they have potential or could be interested in dialogue or mm-hmm. sound design? Yeah, I mean, my easiest suggestion is to do it. Like, there's nothing stopping anybody who's remotely interested in the sound of games or movies or anything to make some sound. 
to go record some bad performances into your laptop mic and play around with the voice and see if you like making yourself sound like a chipmunk or a low monster when you pitch yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Start there. Like you don't need any equipment. Actually, you don't even need any equipment. You can use, if you have a cell phone, you can download apps that tweak your voice and make them sound funny, right? If you like playing in the app, cool. If you like downloading a piece of audio software and messing with it for, you know, a couple hours, cool. Then you might have an interest in doing that, right? If you're like, ooh, I wonder what it would be like to make gunshots in games, right? Or, you know, whatever sound effects in games and you get really enthralled. There's a whole like legion of people who literally got their start because they thought that the lightsaber sound in Star Wars is the Mm. coolest thing ever. And they just want to recreate the lightsaber sound in Star Wars. There's literally like a whole legion of audio people who are obsessed with Star Wars. And just because of the lightsaber sound, that's how they got their start. Mm -hmm. Um, Like Ben Burt literally launched a generation of sound designers by making the sounds of lightsabers, right? Like not kidding. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's literally nothing stopping you from where you're sitting right now to just play and try to make something cool. And if you like it, then keep doing it. And if you don't, stop right <laughs> maybe it wasn't clear mm-hmm. so so you 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 gave us suggestions on what to do once you're interested but how do i know that i'm interested in the first place because a lot of us like i don't know like let's say i play a game but maybe i just okay this sounds nice but then i move on you know like do you need to have like some real like like geekiness around the sound or be into it or yeah i mean i think that it starts with an intense curiosity right Mm -hmm. like we're going back to if we're going to take it that far back then uh if you're not into art then why are you doing art Mm -hmm. right if you're not into the visual arts then why would you pick up like other than just to see if you like it you know why would you pick up visual arts if you don't go oh that sound is cool i wonder what it would be like to make that if you don't ask yourself that question then obviously like well not obviously but there's probably not a massive interest there right Mm -hmm. So you do start with your curiosity. What I would advise is that people stray away necessarily from finding the thing that they're immediately passionate about, right? But follow your curious interests. If you find from your curious interests that you have a large, massive interest in something willing that to the point where you're willing to fight to have a career in it, then then that's how you know that this is for real, right? Especially because creators and games like if you're an artist or a sound person or whatever, those are highly sought after jobs. And so there's a lot of competition to get into the industry. And it's not only that you have to be good, but you have to like, you can be able to convey that, solve, you know, people's problems and really push and get rejected a lot. Right. Most of the people that I know who have full-time audio positions in the industry are there just because they didn't give up. Mm -hmm. They were just not willing to take no for an answer. And they were willing to continue working and continue to take rejection uh, until, you know, and, and um, improving when you get rejected and figuring out why or just growing yourself in general until they got the position that they wanted. But they just took no for an answer. Like they wouldn't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular skills that you think are important for people who want to eventually be like you <laughs> like, <laughs> working with dialogue? Yeah. I mean, um, all the audio skills are necessary. I'm on the fence these days of whether to recommend somebody go to audio school or not. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's kind of a catch-22 because I think that like specific arts audio schools are not worth it for the thing that they promise their students, which is job placement. Mm-hmm. Because they can't promise that. And usually students coming straight out of school aren't going to get jobs in most, even when I was doing school, most of the metrics of people getting jobs were just flat out lies. They were just weren't true and they were doctored numbers. But at the same time, audio schools are a really great place to actually like get your hands on the craft in a very low risk environment with teachers who are usually working professionals, right? It's very hard to just watch a bunch of YouTube videos and get good. But if you were to do such a thing, then, you know, practice, practice, practice and reach out and network with people and ask people online questions. There's a whole community of people specifically with game audio, like all over social media and the internet. And you can easily reach out to, you know, audio directors and or sound design professionals and ask questions and go, hey, I, you know, took a clip of my favorite movie and redid five seconds of it. Like, can you give me feedback on the tire squeal that I was replacing for uh, a car here? Mm. Or can you give me feedback on this engine sound that I made? Right. But the audio skills are really a prerequisite for anything. So like understanding how microphones work, understanding how the just generalities of sound work, how to mix things, how to make content, which is all practice and repetition for my position then you come into like soft skills of working with creatives and understanding how to work with that dynamic um, understanding how to talk to people understanding how projects work and how to do pre-production to production to um, you know post-production how to work with different teams and different viewpoints than your own and just how to manage people and projects overall working with actors for dialogue is its own just rabbit hole of stuff because actors inherently uh more often than not require a lot not hand holding but just we want to be soft and caring about the people who are giving these performances because they're giving something out of their heart trying to create something special with you Mm -hmm. right and so it requires an inherent vulnerability to get yourself to a place to give good performances and when you give a thing you immediately want to get instant feedback as a performer and go was that good i don't know if that was good tell me it was good right and actors poor actors get rejected period like they have to you know go through the the most hiring process of anyone because every time that they get a new job they have to go audition for it and then they get rejected more often than not right and so everybody talks about the insecurity of actors and like well you would be too if people just turned you down all the time right (laughs) so making sure that you take care of those you know relationships is important all of those different things can span the breadth of this job, whether it be audio design or just all the way to managing a team and soft skills and budgets and projects and all that stuff. So would you say any degree is needed to start for this role or that's still kind of? I would say that actually this is, you make a really good point, Annie, um, in that if we're talking about AAA games specifically, because I will make a, a drastic difference between what a AAA game needs and what an independent game needs. Well, not needs, but like needs to, to get to land the job. They're very, very different things. AAA games are bigger companies that look for, that have job postings and descriptions that are very public that people apply to, and you get literally thousands of resumes sometimes. Getting into AAA games as a full-time sound designer is literally a game of Highlander. 
Um, it is literally like there can be only one and there might be a lot of really, really great people that we would love to hire, but we can only hire you one of you and we're crying on the inside because we can't hire everybody. Right. And in that case, like just because it's a corporate company usually, and that's how companies work as they say, you know, a bachelor's is, you know, required or preferred. Right. A lot of times what I would suggest is it's not a bad idea to go to school. And if you're going to get any degree as an audio person, that's not a creative degree and you're just going to a regular school and you don't really know what you want to do, I would actually encourage people to go get an electrical engineering degree. And people, you might think I'm crazy about that, but if you think about how audio hardware is made, everything in audio has to do with electronics. So whether it be speakers or microphones or guitar pedals or turntables, just like literally everything has to do with electronics and like dealing with electrical signals is ever is all audio, right? It's just the more hardcore version of it. And so as an electrical engineer, you can get a job as an electrical engineer and get paid a lot of money if you want to, or you can do your creative stuff while like do creative music while you're doing your degree and just amplify what you're doing as a creative, right? That might not be your immediate job, you know, as you're, you know, going through school, but then it sets you up really well because you have a degree that you worked really hard for that you succeeded with. As a kid, your parents are pleased because you got a degree and you not only got a degree, but you got a good degree. So you have your fallback plan. And then you go, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to go crazy and not make as much money as I could have immediately right out of school by using my elect- uh, electrical engineering degree for something that is really boring and rote and I don't want to do. I'm going to go make video games, right? I'm going to go make game sounds or I'm going to go make lightsaber noises. And then you go fight for it, Right. Uh, but then you're set up really, really, really well. And you have the ability to go do anything you want to do because you have got a bunch of head knowledge about it. Without dragging this answer way too further long, independent games are kind of a different beast in that a lot of that is making sure that you have the skill to make the content that's needed. And then it's literally running a small business um, where you're finding ga- independent game developers and networking with those people getting to know them and making sure that you're solving their problem, which is how audio fits with their game, right? If you're making a game, then you're trying to, again, communicate things or emote things. And as a sound designer, you're going, am I through sound communicating and emoting the emotions that this game needs? Go back to the Mario coin sound, right? Is this memorable enough? Is this repetitious enough? Am I, you know, hooking people in? Is the music catchy so I can, you know, want to play over and over and over again? Does it feel right? But that you don't don't need to go to school for that, right? You just start working and trying to get work for people. And that really is more about sales skill and about combining that with audio. And the things that you mentioned, like uh, repetition of sound and all of that, that you cannot learn it from school anyways, right? So it's almost like you just have to do it and get feedback from the people you're working with. Yeah. This is the thing I didn't know before, too. Like, a really great, if you're looking specifically to get into games, do game jams. Um, because there's game jams happening literally every day, all over the world, all over the internet. And that's because uh, there's this conundrum with AAA of, like, a lot of AAA companies say, you need two years or more of experience to come get a job here. And people are like, yeah, but how do I get AAA experience without having AAA experience? Well, you don't get AAA experience, but if you go and build a bunch of products and you try to do game jams, and hopefully some of them will land and finish into playable products, 
and you start getting an idea of what it is to build games and the problems that are related to games, that's really more about what that two-year you know, working experience is, is that understanding the problem space rather than trying to come in and go like, hey, I make awesome sounds, hire me, because that's what everybody else does. And that doesn't like, everybody makes really good sounds now. It's not that it doesn't require work to make really good sounds, because it does. But a lot of people are really skilled now because there's schools to do this, to train people, and it's just the candidate pool is vast. What are some of the possible career paths if you're interested in dialogue? At the very beginning, we talked about narrative and also the, the audio part, the tech part, which is what you do. But let's say I'm interested in dialogue in general. like How can I start or where can I grow my career around dialogue? Yeah, it all like if you're interested in writing and story crafting, you, there's a bunch of opportunities in narrative. If you're interested in being a talent and a performer, become an actor, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a thing that contributes to it. And there's not a lot of people who go like, I'm going to specialize in dialogue for games as an actor, right? That being that specific about what you want is regardless of what you're doing is the fast track to get you to the place where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Cause then you're going to remove all of the other options. Right. Right. And then if like somebody goes, well, what if I want to hire you for my Hollywood movie? You're not going to turn it down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's the being a talent itself. Um, there's working on the audio side and like the quality of that. There's being a voice director, a talent director, right? So you can coach the talent and uh, pull out from all of the narrative folks what the story is supposed to be and what the you know what we're trying to convey, and then coaching talent to be able to deliver that in a studio. There is the studio engineer and operator, right? So you can be the person who's actually functionally recording the audio that goes under the computer that the talents are speaking, right? You can be a coordinator who's coordinating scripts and making sure that all the scripts get into the right places and that all the talent's saying the right thing and that we have all the information correct. The words match the speech that was delivered by the talent and the words aren't wrong. You know, even down to like talent agents and stuff like that. With the audio part of it, even with dialogue, if you were breaking out of games, you can be a do production work on films. You can be a boom pole operator, hold a microphone above people, or put lavalier wireless microphones on people and capture live performance, right? There's even if it's reality TV and we're doing, you know, something that's real but staged, all of these people have to be mic'd up. All of that stuff has to get recorded. All of that has, stuff has to be put somewhere and then, you know, has to get edited. And uh, on films, there's people who do the, live onset capture where they're holding a microphone and then there's people who just do the mixing and the capturing and that might be a two-person team and then there's all the post-production that goes with that there's people who work in tv who are literally just dialogue editors right so if you've ever watched a cooking show before if you've ever watched food network and a food network competition cooking show then you hear how people will speak in sound bites right and it doesn't really match up because they've stolen all these takes from different places to have the person say something and craft something that the director wants to be said in the story, right? But nobody actually gave that soundbite. Well, there's a person cutting all that together, right? And making that sound as good as possible, whether it's good or bad. We call that a Franken bite in the, 
but yeah, there's like all sorts of different avenues, whether it be on the storytelling narrative side or the audio specific side, or even like talent and auxiliary people who make it come together. It takes a, a huge city to bring any, any entertainment production that you want to do to life. So if I were to ask for your advice or your tip, um, when, when we talk about uh, the different company sizes, is it better to, to look for a job within, I don't know, a smaller indie studio or maybe a midsize or for the, for the big companies like Bungie or Epic? I really think it's subjective. Um, I have friends who would never take my job in a million years mm-hmm. and they think that what I do is crazy and uh, that they can't believe that I subject myself to, you know, what okay. I do every day. <laughs> But then on their end, they, you know, might have to hunt down work or, you know, run the risk of not having work or having to balance, you know, if you're on an independent game, like your income is not steady. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also the argument with that as well, even a full-time income in games isn't steady necessarily because your game could be cut at any moment or your job could be made redundant or whatever. Right. It really does depend on what you're most interested in doing. And what I would say to anybody getting out of school and looking to break into the industry is don't pigeonhole yourself and say that I'm only going to do, you know, AAA games for my entire career. That's all I care about. Because invariably the, especially the AAA market has an age problem. You know, you might get old enough where you need a a specific salary, right? And what if they can't justify that salary anymore, right? It's the games industry is now becoming old enough to be like other industries where if you get near retirement age, well, we can replace you with, you know, people who are half your age who don't cost as much, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've got family members who were working in uh, jobs and were, you know, five to 10 years away from retirement. And then, you know, they got rid of their positions and replaced them with people younger than them because we could still get the job mostly done. And if we hire newer people, lower positions, then we can promote people. And then the overall cost of the, of, of making things go down and, you know, you, we can argue the yay or nay of how good that is. Right. But it is a thing that we deal with sometimes. So I would say that you're liable to jump between the worlds at some point and be doing independent projects at some point, And you're liable maybe to be doing AAA if you want to do at some point. Right. But really like you can start by asking yourself if you, if you want to be in a ragtag group of people and don't mind taking a, you know, financial risk, then jump into independent games. And maybe that's some people would argue that saying financial risk is even a wrong way to think about it, but AAA is a harder in some ways monster to get into. Um, and it's got its own issues too. Like it's, it's a, uh, it's its own game to play and to get into. So there's no one right or wrong way to do it. It's just decide to, to aim yourself at a specific venue or a specific direction and then see what happens. You mentioned in the beginning, a lot of stories that you have, but you haven't shared with us anything yet during this one hour plus interview. So what would be your most embarrassing story from doing a dialogue on a game? All right. I'll give you embarrassing and I'll give you cool. Okay. Great. That's a balance. Embarrassing is funny, but then it's also awkward (laughs) and and we don't want to end on awkward. We want to end on cool. Okay. Um, 
I was a boom operator doing independent movies and it's a pretty thankless job at times. Um, and I was not part of like the film union or anything like that. So, you know, I could do whatever I wanted for as little money as I wanted to do it for. Uh, and once I worked on, worked on multiple movies with Ed Asner, which most of the audience of this would probably know from the animated movie up. Um, he was the old, the voice of the old guy in up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was more famous for my, uh, parents generation for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, I worked on a movie with him and, um, Ed Furlong, who you would know as John Connor from Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. He was all grown up. Uh, so there was, this might not be the most, but this is the one that I'm thinking of. I started telling. There was a scene that we had to shoot that was in an office and a house and it was just somebody's house that they'd staged and, you know, we'd moved into and we were paying to use the house for the day and it was some sort of mansion or whatever. We had to film a scene between Ed Asner and Ed Furlong and there was no space for audio to get into, but they're filming a whole scene. I can't, there's nothing. The the office is too small to put microphones into. Um, They feel like they were wearing wireless microphones, but something wasn't sounding right or it was just weird. And it wasn't working too well. And so I was the boom operator on the shoot. And instead of trying to like reach a microphone in with a stand or do something awkward, what I decided to do was to grab two microphones, two what we call shotgun mics. They're like longer mics that are very directional. Um, we, we had two little wireless things that we could attach to the end of them. So I didn't have to have a bunch of cables running in. And I slid the scene was, uh, the two guys talking over an oak desk, right? Big wooden oak desk. So I slid under the desk and just scrunched up as tiny as I could, small, 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 and then held two shotgun mics in both men's crotches to get the whole scene. (laughs) To capture it. (laughs) To capture great audio. And this is what I say when you're willing to do anything to get the job. That's So I sat there for a good... You know, 20, 30 minutes, microphones at both men's my, 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 my question <laughs> is, how was your elevator pitch to these two gentlemen that this is how it's going to go? Oh, no, there wasn't an elevator pitch. There no. was just, I'm down here. Let's do it. Like, <laughs> we're going to deal with this now. This is as uncomfortable for me as it is for you. But this is, but you want, uh, like, any time invariably when you're working with people, you're like, the go-to in an awkward situation is, well, you want this to be good, right? Like you want your performance to be good. You want the product to be good, right? Let's do the awkward thing together, right? Because <laughs> it's for the sake of the product. Let's do the awkward thing. Um, and there's been more moments than I can count of like, oh, well, this is awkward to put a microphone here or to slide myself here or to do whatever. Um, let's just, yeah, professional courtesy. This is awkward for both of us, but yeah, product. Why not? <laughs> um, yeah. So, and to pivot that, with the cool story, my most, one of my most favorite jobs ever that I ever did was for a stunt pilot. And so he would go fly in air shows and he let off the, he was a uh, stunt pilot who let off an air show. And instead of like, you know, you go to a sporting event, regardless of what country that you're in. And what you do is everybody gets in and before the sporting event starts, you sing the company's or not company, the country's national anthem, right? So everybody gets up, sings the national anthem, is a big unity together. That's awesome. And then we start the game and, you know, the two opposing sides hate each other or whatever, right? Well, 
air show starts the same way. They start off with, you know, some sort of like the national anthem or whatever, and then they do the air show because it's a sporting event. So this guy, instead of having hiring somebody to just a singer to stand on the ground and sing the national anthem and belt it out, which is like most sporting events, this guy does it up in the air from his plane. So he would fly his plane up and then fall through the sky doing stunt of like stunts in his plane, free falling while singing God bless America and the national anthem acapella. And so he had a high powered wireless system and had timed like the first few bars of like God bless America. Cause we couldn't get the audio back up into his plane. So we couldn't sing along with the track. Right. Um, but we would play the beginning of the music and like God bless America or whatever. And he would sing along with it. And as soon as he would start to get a little bit off time, we would fade the music out, right? Because <laughs> he wouldn't be on time anymore. But then he would sing it acapella. And you just see this right. plane falling through the air and he's singing to on key, you know, to pitch. It was great. And then he would do his air show for, you know, five or 10 minutes and then land. And it was one of the coolest things, uh, coolest experiences I ever got to do. And the best part about it, other than how cool the experience was, was um he was always the first pilot out so the rest of the day i had off after doing you know the 20 minute show i get to sit in the vip lounge and eat nice food and listen to (laughs) pilots all day long tell you know war stories about all of their crazy pilot stunts because pilots are crazy and they do crazy things and sometimes it's awesome to just sit there and listen to them tell stories and not say a word but eat good food so right um yeah that's (laughs) Probably one of the cooler things I've ever done is audio for a stunt pilot who sang the national anthem while flying his plane and falling out of the sky. Wow. Well, he makes enough as a pilot. He does, doesn't need to reconsider becoming a singer because <laughs> he could remain on pitch in the extreme circumstances. That's pretty impressive. I mean, I think if you're that crazy to both sing and be a stunt pilot, that money just isn't like... Yeah, money's not a problem for him. You're just, you're just <laughs> yeah. you know, concerned with being amazing and crazy at the same time. Yeah. So. But what about games? Anything games? <sighs> or what is like, or, or let's say that the oh. director comes to you and yeah. what, like, what is the most difficult challenge that you had to like design a sound for? I'm, I'm crazy. I'm not, I won't give you design the sound story, but I'll give you the story of the last year, last year and a half. This is the craziest thing I've, I've ever seen has been uh coronavirus. This will be your good sound bite for games. Um, games, especially AAA games are recorded in studios you know, whether it be in Los Angeles or New York or London or wherever. And it's mostly like AAA games are using um, Screen Actors Guild talent, right? And so with the union rules of the Screen Actors Guild comes, you know, certain pay and certain working conditions and studios and how all of these things work and, you know, time rates. And there's a bunch of rules that we, that uh, AAA games have to abide by if they're going to use Screen Actors Guild talent, which any name talent that you've ever heard of for a voice actor, or even if it's a famous actor who gets into games, um, we have to, you know, adhere to those things. And then uh, there was this thing called a global pandemic where uh, nobody could be in the same room with each other unless you were in the same household. And, uh, you know, we had animated movies and, you know, regular movies and just all sorts of productions just stopped. Right. And, I work on this thing called a live service game that doesn't ever stop. It gets, keeps getting released. And so the one rule about live service games is that there is no such thing as not shipping. 
right? It's going to ship. It's, it's just dependent on what it ships with. And so in the beginning of coronavirus, there were a number of games that shipped without an EVO in them because people couldn't figure out how to do it, right? So uh, in the one case that I'm not going to give away how the, you know, how we cooked in the kitchen, but I will give away some of the kitchen, is that we had to take time to figure out how to deploy a way to record talent completely remotely. Um, our release of uh, Destiny 2 Beyond Light, fun fact that I can totally share with you, uh, was recorded 100% in people's homes. So every voice performance that was put into Destiny 2 Beyond Light and even most since then were recorded not in a recording studio, but in, you know, husband and wife's closets, in cabins and places, in blanket forts. Um, it, you know, it's, it, all you have to do is go to Lance Reddick's Twitter account. You can see him in closets recording things, right? For various games. Um, but we had to figure out how to set up, you know, internet connections where it could be four or five different states are connecting to the same call at the same time. Um, people all over the country because people moved home to be with their families during the pandemic, but we're still working, right? Um, how to get scripts shipped around the internet, how to deal with things where like people's computers failed and fell over, um, how to deal with internet faults, um, you know, upgrading internet, dealing with all that stuff, talent who have no idea how to use microphones and computers and computer interfaces and what acoustic treatment is like and how to do any of this half decently. Right. Um, so we, uh, offline production for the better part of like a month, month and a half to solve the problem and prove a test case that we could actually make it happen. Um, and so Beyond Light, uh, Destiny 2 Beyond Light was the, the end product of all of that, um, was us, you know, every single talent, every single performer, every single performance in that game. And I think the accompanying season, the season 12 was recorded completely from home. Uh, completely over the internet, still paying people, still uh, having people keep their jobs. And even now, like we're moving into studios slowly, but surely bit by bit. Um, but you know, with new variants of COVID and whatnot and safety precautions, we're kind of in and out and in between and trying to make sure that we care for people more than we, you know, push people to record in a certain environment. Um, so we're still in some cases recording from home, but that was. It's both the craziest story and the biggest achievement was like take 20 some odd people who know nothing about audio, who only act and haven't ever acted in their house with their kids screaming, right? Um, and just like all of the complications that you get when working from home, when everybody's working from home and they don't get to leave their home and go to a studio where it's a closed environment that they can turn their brain off and they can not think about how the lawnmower is going in somebody's yard or the plane that just flew overhead or their, you know, ch child screaming downstairs or the fight that they're having with their spouse or God forbid the kid decided to reset the internet in the middle of recording. Right. Or like Comcast decided that they were just going to pull the plug on my internet for a minute. Right. Like all of right. these things still happen to this day um, of just complications upon complications. Um, much less getting to like, hey, can you get a little closer to the microphone? Can you get away from the microphone? How loud are you recording right now? Um, what, you know, do you know how to turn up the volume 
uh, or go like, hey, turn up the gain on that. And people are like, what is gain? What does that mean? Right. And so, oh, it's the big volume knob. Turn that one up. Right. <laughs> Which one is that one? Oh, I don't know. Like I'm trying to yeah. work through all these problems. So absolutely the the craziest thing we've ever done that I've ever seen happen in games um, or in any other entertainment for that matter. But it's also the proudest achievement probably of my entire career was not even so much like shipping the game and yeah, we got a cool game out. But like, if you think about it, um, keeping lots and lots of people employed between the game studio and the talent and all of our external vendors. And then also when people are at home freaking out about, you know, their lives, uh, that we provided something to take it all back to the very beginning of the podcast that we started with to give them an escape. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are people who love our game and love playing our game. And there are also people who love our game and love going online and screaming about how much they hate our game. And each of those people I love, you know, from the bottom of my heart because they care. And, uh, to be able to deliver them the experience they were expecting and keep people employed in the middle of the craziest global event of our lifetime. Like that's the icing on the cake of my job. Like I can retire now happily. (laughs) Yeah. I think for a lot of jobs, like last year it's just everyone had to reinvent how they were doing things and just think about process. Um, even uh, earlier this year, uh, actually last year we did an episode, which is like high school teachers. They, a lot of them don't even know like how's what's zoom like they, they don't know and they have to teach and it's like how do you teach a class remotely it's like everything is different so and to that point like to speak on the bungee thing for a moment like uh and what i would say is the industry at large you probably hear the story over and over and over again but we had hundreds of people who had to move from their workspace at a desk in a physical location in an office and had to be offline and go home right and what the stories that you don't hear are all of the people who, you know, pulled together computers and hardware and made servers work and made people able to connect to internal company stuff from home, you know, requisitioned all of the new hardware, bought software licenses, did countless, countless, countless IT tickets. And just like those are people that don't, when you play a game, you don't think about how hard that all of these, I, I don't even want to call them support players, but like the people who aren't up front and center that you don't recognize from all of the stories and the news for games. Like there's so many people who enable all of that other stuff to work, right? And who don't get any praise um, and don't get any sort of public recognition for it. And it, there's, it took so many people to get everybody off into their homes in a place where they're hopefully comfortable working to still create products that people enjoy and stay employed by. It's just a massive undertaking. And it just, whenever I sit back and think about that for a minute, it's almost tear inducing because it's just like the amount of care that had to go in that people really got up and gave a shit. Uh, Because I know that I pulled, I think it was something like 10 weeks of overtime or something like that uh, between trying to figure out getting how to get a product made and then actually making the product in the limited time that we had to do it. And I am the least advocate of what the game games industry terms as crunch, right? Which is just effectively the rest of the world calls overtime. Um, and I like 
yell at people all the time to, you know, stop working when it's time to stop working. Um, but when you're faced with a thing of, well, either I work my normal hours and we don't ship and we don't keep, keep people employed and we don't, you know, like literally we have actors who do theater shows and movies that stopped, right? Their income just stopped. Um, and we have people who work on dialogue who, if there's nothing to work on, then why do we keep people employed? Why do we keep me employed? Right. Um, so the time investment was more than worth it to, for the effect that that causes. And there were, there's just countless number of people and stories who did that who aren't me and don't have anything to do with dialogue and might be a support role, quote unquote. But what I would say is that's it's just integral, right? So there's so many, like every single person who works to make the product work is important mm. and is required to get the thing out at some point or another, right? Okay. Adam, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the interview. I think we've come to the end. I think this is one of the longer interviews that we, that we did recently. Thank you very much for sharing all your experience. This was a fun time with you. Any final words that maybe you want to say? Uh, it's a pleasure, and I'm glad that I could talk your ears off, and hopefully something was beneficial for your listeners. Absolutely. What I would say is games, getting into games especially can be discouraging, um, and it can be a very hard thing to break into uh, because it's such a desired business. And it's especially today, a lot of kids want to get into it because it's cool. And it is at, like, I don't, I don't have any complaints about what I do for a living ever because I, even on my work day, um, it's a blessing to be able to do what I do and to have the fun that I get to do. If you love it, even if it's hard, just keep going for it and bust your tail and don't let anybody tell you no, because there's so many talented people who have what it takes to break into the industry who uh, could do something really, really, really awesome. And if you just aim yourself at a dream that you've got, don't worry about whether or not you attain it and whether or not you hit exactly what you wanted to do. Because if you're working towards the thing you're most excited about, inevitably you're going to do something that's cool, whether or not is exactly the thing that you wanted. Uh, I think my career is a big testament to that. I didn't you know, outline literally everything I've done, but um, I have so many stories that I am fortunate to be able to share with people and I hope everybody gets that and just don't, don't quit on yourself and uh, remove the possibility of, of having something cool because you gave up and decided that it was too hard or that you couldn't do it or whatever, because all that's not true. Just work for it. Awesome. Nice. Well said. Thank you, Adam. Thank you as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Until next time. Bye bye. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in this episode. If you are a high school student who is interested in creating content but not sure how to start, why not join us and do it together? You can be a guest or even a creator on the show. Interested to know more? Simply click on the link in the description and we will be in touch. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and follow our podcast. You can find extra content from our interview on YouTube and TikTok. Tell us what you think on Discord and Reddit. We are How Real Life Works on all the socials. Links are in the description.